Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given only six minutes to present, which is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include presidential power under the Constitution, Islamism in France, the Electoral College, and the myth of the entrepreneurial state. Our lead-off speaker today is Michael McConnell, who is the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor at Stanford Law School and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. Michael is a former federal judge with the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Tenth Circuit. Michael will be discussing his new book, entitled The President, Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution. The book is provocative because it looks back at the original constitutional debate to figure out which branch of government has designated responsibilities. Based on this framework, Michael disagrees with some of the most important 20th century Supreme Court cases on presidential power. Our second speaker is Ian Hirsi who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institute and the author of several books, including Infidel and Heretic. In fact, we did a book club with Ian Hirsi years ago on Infidel, and I'm thrilled to have her back for what happens next. Ayan will be speak today about Islamism in France, and I hope to ask her about the murder of a, by a Muslim terrorist of a French school teacher who discussed the Charlie Hebdo shootings in class. What happens next then shifts to a debate about the Electoral College. Jack Rakoff, who is the William Robertson co-professor of history and American studies at Stanford, will argue for abolishing the Electoral College to be followed by Robert Hardaway, who is professor of law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law, who will discuss his book, The Electoral College and the Constitution, The Case for Preserving Federalism. Our final speaker today is Deirdre McCloskey, who is a distinguished professor of economics, history, English, and communications at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Deirdre will be discussing her new book, The Myth of the Entrepreneurial State. Okay, that's today's session. Since the beginning of what happens next in March, when COVID first began, I've spent a few minutes each month to discuss the Bureau of Labor Statistics employment report because the data are the most important real-time estimate for what is happening in the economy and because the data has been the most volatile in our lifetime. I think the top story this month is that the employment growth has stalled, likely due to the spike in COVID cases. The established survey has jobs for the month down by 140,000 jobs. This was led by a job loss of 370,000 in restaurants that was likely caused by state restrictions closing restaurants and bars due to the spike in COVID. This means that away from the restaurants, the economy grew by 230,000 jobs, which is trend growth. There was some other good news in the report. 750,000 employees moved from part-time work to full-time employment this month, um, and that's a, a, a big change. Uh, but let's look at the big picture. How has employment changed since the beginning of COVID? Well, there's been 9 million job losses in the calendar year 2020. So we have a long way to go. Uh, currently, 57.4% of the working age population is employed, which is 3.5% less than pre-COVID levels, which is actually pretty good considering uh, the decline in GDP. The biggest challenge facing the American labor economy is how do we re-employ those 9 million workers if many of those workers previously were employed for firms that have now closed permanently? Uh, there are always transitional problems for businesses to hire new employees because they don't know them like an established firm would. Okay, um, 
That ends our employment discussion, and let's begin today's session. Our first speaker today is Stanford Law Professor Michael McConnell. Please go ahead. So we've been riveted this week with the terrible events in Washington, and that has led um, many members of the press and public to be deluging me and others who study the presidency with questions about the 25th Amendment, which uh, I think has never been on the uh, headline, the headlines before, uh, and also impeachment again. And I'd be happy to talk about those things during Q&A, but uh, what I really want to do is look forward to uh, issues that are going to arise in the uh, new Biden administration. And I have to say that I am uh, not looking forward to uh, the case of whiplash that I expect to get, because every time the presidency changes party hands, uh, many people's opinions about the nature of the presidency and the powers that pertain to the presidency uh, shift uh, like overnight. So those who are very critical of uh, President Obama's unilateral policies uh, for the most part became quite pleased with uh, President Trump's uh, aggressive use of executive orders. And, uh, and the, those who have been criticizing President Trump's executive unilateralism, I suspect many of them will be praising the same kinds of assertions of power by uh, uh, new President uh, Biden. And yet the Constitution gives the same set of powers to presidents that we like and presidents that we don't like. It is a prescription for both an empowerment of the president and also constraint of that power and it stays the same. And it's my uh, conviction that if we paid more, uh, more close attention uh, to what the Constitution has to say for presidents on, you know, on both sides, that we would have a more stable uh, republic and maybe a calmer uh, attitude toward uh, presidents uh, and presidential power. So the book is actually... A, a good deal of history, um, but it's, I, I hope, more than just history because what I've tried to do is use that history uh, to provide explanations and interpretations of uh, presidential power uh, based on uh, using the, the uh, close examination of the text itself, but also in light of the British constitutional experience that the framers look back to and to early uh, disputes over presidential power that helped uh, frame and develop and uh, construe uh, the Constitution. What I do is I show that there are actually three different kinds of executive power that need to be distinguished. There are prerogative powers. These are powers that are vested in the president by virtue of his office or previously in the king by virtue of the king's uh, office. Uh, they are not given to the executive by the legislative branch, and the legislative branch cannot regulate them, override them, uh, or diminish them. Uh, among these that are most obvious are such powers as the veto power, uh, the pardon power, whether we like it or not, uh, commander-in-chief power, uh, and, and others. Uh, they are the president's uh, prerogative powers are specifically laid out in the Constitution. They're not implied. And in most cases, they're actually reduced 
from the corresponding uh, prerogative power as it existed for the king under the uh, British Constitution. The second category of powers are delegated powers. These are things that the president cannot do without advance authorization from Congress. So, for example, uh, the president cannot spend a dime of public money without an appropriation passed by uh, Congress. He can't. He can't tax. He can't. Uh, uh, he can't borrow. Uh, he cannot uh, enforce the law that is. Uh, restrict people's life, liberty, or property uh, without there being a law which he is uh, uh, in, enforcing. And then the third type of power, which I, I think has generally gone unrecognized but is quite important, I call residual executive powers. These are powers that the president exercises uh, under the rubric of the executive power, the, the first sentence of Article II being that the president is vested with the executive power. Uh, and it is, I, I try to show in the book what the uh, character of those powers are, and especially their limitations, that they are limited uh, to uh, powers of an executive nature and may not entrench upon either legislative or judicial uh, powers. And perhaps more importantly, they are subject to being overridden or regulated or diminished uh, by Congress. So long as Congress is operating within the scope of its enumerated powers, it has full, it basically can trump the president, but the president doesn't have to wait for Congress. Until Congress is active, the president has this uh, uh, kind of uh, authority. Well, this is, uh, I think, when you look at the presidential powers in light of these three different categories, that many of the separation of powers uh, controversies that have gone to the United States Supreme Court in the last century are um, are much clearer that the court has actually thrown a lot of smoke in the air uh, and has not provided a very clear way of distinguishing between what powers a president can exercise and what powers uh, uh, he cannot. This comes up especially often uh, these days in, in connection with executive orders a lot of people don't even know what executive orders are. Uh, they're not mentioned in the Constitution, but there seems to be this belief there was by supporters of Mr. Trump, and I think already we can see that the supporters of Mr. Biden are taking the same position. They think that um, executive orders uh, are a way the president can do almost anything, that uh, he, he really doesn't have to go to Congress. He can just exercise uh, uh, he could just issue an executive order and make the world uh, uh, conform to what policies he wants. And um, this is a misunderstanding. Uh, an executive order does not gain any additional authority merely by virtue of being called an executive order. Executive orders are authoritative only insofar as they are uh, putting into effect powers that the president has either directly under the Constitution or from the statutes, and that leads us then back to the various categories of power uh, and where the president uh, gets that. So thanks very much. I look forward to the questions. All right. Um, I'll start off right away, and I encourage uh, the other speakers on the line to join in at any time. Uh, it makes a better show when they do. Um, so in reading your book, Michael, I was, um, I guess, a little bit in shock 
um, when you started discussing the steel seizure cases. Um, in particular, um, I had been taught when I was in school that the seal seizure case, and in particularly Jackson's opinion, uh, where he stated that the president's powers are most strong when it also gets approval from the Congress and when the two branches work together. And you suggest that uh, Jackson's opinion was uh, wrongly decided. Could you just spend a second and give the background uh, for the steel seizure case and what you think Jackson got right and maybe what the other justices who were in dissent on that case probably uh, were more accurate about? And maybe finally, why it's important. And gets the answer right. So this is a case where uh, President Harry Truman, during uh, the Korean War, issued an executive order seizing uh, the steel mills uh, at, at a time of a labor uh, dispute in order to keep the steel mills open uh, to produce armaments to keep the war effort uh, going. And uh, the court held, and I think correctly, and Justice Jackson, I think correctly held, uh, that President Truman did not have authority uh, to issue that uh, executive order. My problem with Justice Jackson's opinion is its analysis, its reasoning, not where it comes out. Um, and so he, basically what Jackson says is that you look to whether Congress and the President are in agreement. And so if Congress has uh, agreed with the president, the president's power, uh, he exercises essentially the entire power of the national government. Uh, if Congress and the president are in disagreement, that, if, that is, if Congress has indicated its disagreement with the president, the president has very little power. Um, uh, and then in cases where Congress has been silent or ambiguous, uh, this is, which is a very large number of cases, in fact, it's been you know, most of the separation of powers cases in uh, modern uh, history fall into this category. Uh, Jackson says that this is a, a, he calls it a zone of twilight, and he says that it should be, it can only be decided by the courts in light of what he calls uh, contemporary imponderables. Well, I think that all three of those um, uh, ideas are, are wrong. The first one's almost right. It is true that when Congress and the president are in agreement that the, that the president's action is usually going to be uh, uh, upheld, but if, if we mean by agreement that Congress has actually passed a law authorizing the president to do uh, what he did, uh, I, don't, it, it, I do think that Jackson is wrong in that he when he talks just when he talks about congressional implied agreement or implied powers congress actually has to pass laws uh, uh through uh, bicameralism and presentment if it's going to be if it's going to empower the president and then the you know the next category just ignores the entire existence of prerogative powers and when the president is exercising one of those uh the president is going to going to prevail. And then in this middle category, which is so important and so large, it, it, it's a complete, his analysis is completely useless. Uh, contemporary imponderables, well, if they're imponderable, how are the judges supposed to ponder them? And I think contemporary imponderables just invites the judges uh, to second guess the decisions and decide them on the basis of how they judge the policy implications uh, for the moment. 
I do not think that any cases fall into this intermediate category. I think that every single separation of powers case involves one of the three kinds of, of, of power that the president has, and congressional silence uh, doesn't uh, uh, change the result in any of them. I have a quick question, if you have time. Go. Um, what, were the, what was the dynamic? What was the dynamic of uh, President Roosevelt's um, executive order putting hundreds, a hundred thousand of Americans in, in sort of um, detention or concentration camps, whatever? I don't think, as I recall, that was not approved by Congress. Do you know what the uh, dynamic of that was? Yes, yeah, so this is a an action taken under military authority, and it's not, I mean, the, that decision which was upheld by the Supreme Court at the time and recently has been, the Supreme Court recently specifically overruled uh, the decision uh, upholding that, is not really a matter of separation of power so much as it was uh, that the uh, decision was both violated uh, the due process rights of the uh, Japanese and internees, and also uh, because of its ba being based upon uh, their, uh, you know, racial and ethnic categories, rather than any specific uh, actions uh, undertaken by the individuals involved, violated the equal protection clause. Just to follow up on that a second, um, we had a, another speaker on one of the calls, Peter Irons. He spoke about it. And he mentioned in one of his books, uh, he defended um, an appeal of that case uh, recently. And I guess that some um, information had not been given to the defense. And it, that case, it was then thrown out. One of the famous cases was thrown out for um, you know, prosecutorial malfeasance. Under, how did this happen to reappear in front of the Supreme Court for them to make this decision? Oh, was one of the parties still involved? Or is it a practice of the Supreme Court to look at cases back in history and say that they were, uh, you know, made, they had made a mistake? So there, there are things going on at three different levels. Uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the issue simply came up as a matter of precedent, uh, and the court, uh, in a case un that had nothing to do with uh, internment camps, uh, but, but in which the uh, same uh, sort of issue appeared. The court said that it wasn't going to follow the logic of the Korematsu case and, and because it was wrongly decided. <coughs> but the other two uh, uh, forums in which this is occurring are um, th there are some people s still around who were, um, uh, you know, who were the victims of this internment policy, and they've been able to go to trial court uh, and get their um, their actual cases uh, uh, reversed, and then finally, Congress has acted, recognized the injustice of the situation, and has voted uh, uh, compensation for these individuals. Michael, just following up on Jack's yeah. question, just for a just following up on Jack's question, um, as I recall, uh, as as the facts, uh, Earl Warren was governor of California, and. Earl Warren was the one that went to the West Coast Military Authority and made a request for the uh, to intern the Japanese. So, in what context did the state authorities play? Um, if, you, if you know the history, uh, that combined with the, milita uh, the military to go ahead and pursue that decision. 
Um, I'm, I'm going to answer that. I should say, by the way, that, our, that the book has nothing to do nothing with to the do with it. I agree. The case <laughs> that I teach and I'm interested in. Uh, uh, so Earl Warren did do this. He was in large part responsible for this uh, terrible event, but uh, only in an advisory and requesting capacity. It was actually a federal order uh, by, uh, by President Roosevelt uh, and in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court was told was told and, and actually given affidavits uh, that there were uh, you know serious national security uh, interests that were being uh, achieved. And what we now know is that the Supreme Court was actually misled and that there was uh, substantial countervailing evidence that was not presented to the court on that point. Jackson, you want to follow Michael, I wonder, how do you read, um, if I remember correctly, Jackson's uh, dissenting opinion in Korematsu against his concurring opinion in Youngstown? Do, do you see Jackson grow? Uh, I guess off the top of my head, I wonder whether you know, Jackson in the later case, in the Youngstown case, was attempting to kind of formulate some of the Misgivings and some of the some of the reservations he's expressed earlier about having the judicial power sign on to a bold executive move in wartime. Well, Jack, I think that's very plausible. I you know I I don't want to you know express I don't know enough about Jackson's psychology to be sure, but it certainly does seem logical uh, that. He re, that he may have regretted some of the excesses of the uh, er, earlier time, and that uh, the Youngstown decision may be uh, cutting back from that. Jackson also, in the in his opinion, in the Youngstown and the steel seizure case, he, there's a very amusing uh, little aside in which he um, in, in which he quotes a uh, an opinion of the Attorney General approving an earlier order that's very similar uh, to that. And uh, Jackson, now in his capacity as, um, as Supreme Court Justice, uh, says that the court needs to be skeptical of executive branch legal opinions, uh, even when the author is himself, because they <laughs> written the earlier opinion. <laughs> I wanted to go to a different case that you discussed in your book, and that's, I may pronounce the names wrong here, Zivotevsky uh, versus Kerry. And this was a case where uh, Congress had passed uh, a law saying that if you were uh, born in Jerusalem, that the passport would say Jerusalem, Israel. And this was something that, um, for example, the Obama administration refused to comply with because um, they did not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, and I think the question is, um, what are the president's powers as it relates to foreign affairs, and who gets to make that decision? Is that um, does Congress have that authority or not? Um, Michael, how do you think about foreign affairs being a, a classification of powers for the president? Yes. Yeah, so the Zivotofsky case may seem trivial in a way because it's just about you know one word on a passport but it was probably the most important foreign affairs-related separation of powers case that we've had in the last several decades. Uh, and uh, the, all, again, the result of the case 
you know, may or may not have been correct, but the analysis of the majority opinion, which is written by uh, Anthony Kennedy, uh, seems extremely uh, dubious uh, because the court, um, and, and it's related really to the way you put the question, if you, you know, I hope you don't mind a, a little critique of the question itself. <laughs> Go right ahead. Found as if there were there is a a foreign affairs clause to the Constitution, um, and and there really there isn't. There are a number of foreign affairs powers, and they are not all given to the president. There's this, I think a sense that the uh, president has nearly prerogative power over the whole field of foreign affairs. But when you look carefully at the Constitution, in fact, Congress is given um, you know, very significant, maybe not as much power as the president, but very significant uh, power in the foreign affairs arena. And it, it's my, and, and the Supreme Court held that this um, uh, decision as to whether to put the word Jerusalem on the passports was part of the recognition power, that is the power of the president to recognize uh, what foreign government there is and you know what the extent of their territory uh, is and the court held that that is a they didn't use the word prerogative but they effectively held that that is a prerogative power uh, of the president it's something that the president gets to decide absolutely uh, and congress doesn't uh, have the right to speak to it i think that that's quite wrong the recognition power uh, is an important power but it was not given to the president uh, as a prerogative, uh, it is. I think that this falls. Uh, there's I, I, a lot of history of this in, in the book um, because the there were some important recognition uh, uh, disputes even in the George Washington administration, uh, and the, the Supreme Court did not uh, care to, uh, to to look at those in any uh, real detail, uh, but. Uh, uh, I believe that this is a power which is one of those residual powers under the um, executive vesting clause and therefore is subject to uh, the Congress's override. And so Congress had passed a statute that allowed uh, people to choose to put the word Israel on their passport or when they were born in Jerusalem. And so the real question in the case, I think, wasn't is this a, you know, a power of the president? The real question is, did Congress have a, an enumerated power to pass that statute? Uh, I think the answer to that is yes, but it's interesting that only one justice uh, seemed to think that that was even an important part of the case. I think that points to a larger point here, which is that the powers of the president and of the Congress uh, are reciprocal. And so in most of these separation of powers conflicts, it isn't good enough just to look at what Article 2 says about the powers of the president. You also have to look at Article 1 and see what are the powers of, uh, of Congress uh, over the matter. This is a particularly important point. Uh, I, another example I, I talk about in the book is the so-called torture memos under uh, George uh, W. Bush, where you know, completely putting aside all the moral and international law questions having to do with the particular uh, interrogation techniques uh, involved, Congress had passed a statute, in fact, two statutes, 
that governed uh, this matter. And the, uh, Bush's lawyers said that his powers, which are prerogative powers under the commander-in-chief clause, uh, were superior uh, to anything Congress might uh, have said. And I think the, the problem with that is that Congress has actually given an explicit Article One, Section 8 power uh, to regulate the conduct of American armed forces. And I think those statutes uh, are, you know, fall absolutely clearly within the core of the historical meaning of that uh, power. And to say that the Commander-in-Chief Clause trumps the explicitly enumerated power of Congress to pass rules for the regulation of the conduct of the armed forces, I think, was a, a real mistake. I wanted to follow up with one of your points listed under the prerogative powers, and that was the right to pardon. Um, I just received a question from one of our listeners, uh, Erwin Warren. He has a couple questions. Uh, one is, what are any limitations on the president's right to pardon? You know, usually we see pardons in the last week of presidential administrations, so we're probably going to see a bunch. Um, and, for example, are the limitations, does someone have to be charged with the crime before there's a pardon, or could some, can the president just issue some sort of a blanket pardon for any crime committed? Uh, can you do it for any one administration, anyone uh, outside the administration? Are there any limitations, including himself, uh, on the pardon right? Um, that's a great question. Uh, there are some limitations. Uh, they cannot, uh, the pardon does not extend to impeachment. Uh, and most importantly, it only extends uh, to federal crimes. So uh, Cyrus Vance, you know, looking into the affairs of the, of, um, the Trump operation in, under New York law is completely unaffected by the, uh, by the pardon power. Now, it uh, also, and, this, and so that's explicit, but it also historically can be seen, uh, it's, it's limited to acts that, have, that took place prior to the pardon, but, not, uh, uh, but it can extend to acts that have not yet been uh, prosecuted. Uh, and that actually has to be so for the pardon power to, uh, to serve its most important purpose. And its most important purpose was actually in case of insurrection, uh, as a really means of, of reconciliation uh, after the uh, insurrection has been put down. So the Whiskey Rebellion in the, under the Washington administration is the best example of this. You know, Washington marches an army, by the way, an army larger than there ever was put into the field during the entire uh, Revolutionary War uh, against the rebels, uh, against the whiskey tax, uh, mostly in western Pennsylvania. And, and after putting down the insurrection, a couple of people were tried, and then uh, Washington uh, issued a pardon uh, of, the, uh, of all the other participants for, uh, for uh, what they did. And this, this was a, a gracious gesture, but also a very shrewd gesture, because it kept... Uh, it, it basically put an end to the rebellion uh, and enabled um, people to come together. And if he had been prosecuting all those, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of participants, 
he would have been creating martyrs. It would have been it would have festered, uh, uh, you know, for a long time. Or a similar example is uh, Jimmy Carter's. Uh, or how about in the Civil War? Didn't Lincoln say you can take your gun and head home? Yes. Or was that well, yes, Lincoln pardoned uh, the participants, the, the Confederate people in the Confederate Army. All uh, the only people who weren't fully pardoned after the Civil War were people who had previously sworn an oath of allegiance to the United States and then took up arms uh, against the uh, country. And ultimately, the, there was only one person who, uh, Jefferson Davis, who lay. Uh, never uh, received any kind of pardon, and Jimmy Carter did it for draft uh, 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 resistors in the in the Vietnam War. So, uh, yes, people can be pardoned even though they haven't yet been charged with a crime. Now, there is an open question about uh, sort of open-ended pardons, where the crimes. And where we're not referring to specific acts, but for example, you know, any uh, your your pardon for anything you may have done, and uh, um, uh, you know, over the you know preceding number of years, uh, that's an open question. Uh, but there is a precedent, modern precedent, which is the Gerald Ford pardon Richard Nixon. Uh, for any acts that he might have done uh, when he was president. So mm -hmm. uh, if that precedent holds, um, then the uh, pardon That's... does not have to be for any one specific crime. Okay, thank you. Uh, we're going to uh, move ahead to, and Michael, stick around because I want you to, uh, to ask a bunch of questions during the Electoral College section. Um, our next speaker is Ayan Hirsi She'll be discussing Islamism in France. Uh, she's the author of Infidel and Heretic. Ayan, if you're on the line, please go ahead. Um, Larry, thank you very much for that. Um, and I just have to thank uh, Michael McConnell for a fascinating conversation. I completely forgot what I was supposed to do. That's how fascinating it was. Um, I'm going to start the six minutes and try my best to adhere. Um, I want to start with the timeline. Um, Larry, when Samuel Paty, a school teacher in France, was beheaded on October the 2nd, 2020, because he had been teaching a class on free speech, and um, he had shown caricatures um, that the magazine Charlie Hebdo had shown in 2015, uh, and on this was back in 2015, um, January 2015, a number of the journalists were beheaded because of those caricatures. But the school teacher, Samuel Paty, was killed, accused of blasphemy, not because he had drawn the caricatures, but because he had shown them. And then Larry reached out to me and said, could you please speak to us about the dangers of Muslim radicals in France? Well, what I'd like to do um, this afternoon, it's afternoon for me, um, is to say the problem is really much bigger than France and that uh, we have to see it in a European context. And in order to do that, we have to understand it um, in a way that, uh, you know, you can come at this from different perspectives, but my perspective is um, it's really a failure of leadership, a failure of modern European leadership from 
pretty much after the Second World War. And um, the leadership in Europe has failed on this particular issue. And the issue is, uh, look at it like a branch, sorry, like, yeah, a, a branch with three intertwined twigs, and it's a confounding problem. The first part of that is the failure of the leadership in anticipating the problems from Muslim-majority countries. Um, and when I say that, I mean immigration from Muslim-majority countries. Uh, I think they should have been able to anticipate that, given that they had colonized a number of these countries and were familiar with the way things work in, in those contexts. They should have seen uh, that once uh, Muslim immigrants in large numbers would settle or uh, resettle in Europe, um, that some of these problems would present themselves. Uh, so they failed to see that. The second is their inability to um, integrate or develop a coherent set of policies to integrate those immigrants. And in that sense, they failed not only their own societies, but they also failed the immigrants. And finally, and this is later in the 1980s, they failed to understand the nature of political Islam. And in particular, the difference between um, jihad, which is the acts of terrorism that have now uh, been carried on, like the beheading of Samuel Pati, uh, the attacks in uh, uh, the attacks in uh, Bataclan. Uh, uh, there have been several attacks in France. France has been in the news more than in any other uh, European uh, country that has hosted Muslim-majority populations. Uh, but Radical Islam was like a background music. They were setting up mosques, Islamic centers. Um, they were persuading young, confused, uh, in some ways disenfranchised and victims of discrimination, um, young populations in Europe uh, from Muslim-majority countries who were either born there or who were first generation into rejecting the values of the country that they had come to. So if you combine these three failures, you have to ask yourself, why did they do it? Why did these European leaders fail to do this? And you are going to get different explanations, but one that I find fascinating is that a lot of these European leaders on the center right or on the center left tried to squeeze the issues of Muslim immigration, uh, the problems with integration and radical Islam into the left right-wing spectrum or cleavage that they were used to um, addressing their own issues, their own economic issues, political issues, etc. So in some ways, um, that does actually make sense because every time you bring about the issue of well, what should we do about integration, why, more or less, in what manner, what is the morality of rescuing people that are coming from failed states and civil wars? Um, they were absolutely incapable of agreeing on that. And the crisis continued and continues and gets bigger. On the issue of integration, even more interesting, some, especially those on the center-left and beyond, would argue, well, these people should keep their values and their customs but if that's the case, then how do you integrate them? And then the center right would respond 
in almost a caricature manner that the people on the left were either too dumb, too relativist, too cosmopolitan. And so a legitimate discussion on what it is and how should we integrate immigrants in general and Muslims in particular, um, how should we talk about such issues as blasphemy law? If you come from an area where you have blasphemy laws, Oops, that's my timer telling me the six minutes is up. Um, okay. You want to finish your <laughs> thought and then we'll go from there. Go ahead, please. Let, let me please finish that thought because yes, um, the integration part is very, very important. It seems as if these, um, the leadership on the center-left and the center-right could not possibly agree on what it is that represented the core values of their own countries. And what makes Muslim immigrants different from, say, other immigrants is when such issues come about as, you know, blasphemy. If you take freedom of speech for granted, beheading someone because they blaspheme against your religion is just something you can't ignore. You have to have a rational conversation about that. But what about women's rights? What about gay rights? What about anti-Semitism that's now promoted in the name of Islam or in the name of radical Islam? And then finally, and this is uh, the point where I think uh, probably the failure is at its worst, is the European leadership ignored the studies, the reports, uh, and the facts on the ground where dawah, dawah is the proselytization. It is the process of converting non-Muslims into Islam and radicalizing moderate Muslims and turning them into jihadis. Once you ignore that process, you will forever be surprised and shocked every single time a jihadi terrorist attack takes place. But then you do nothing about the foreign money that's flowing into the country, the foreign institutions that are established to, and to use Macron's words as the president of France, create and establish an Islamist separatist, parallel society. And so I'm going to add just, I'm going to leave the rest of this for my Q&A, but to end up, it is, it is the failure in these three areas, the squeezing of these problems into the left-right uh, framework that I think has brought us to the place where we are in Europe. Okay, um, thank you. And I'm gonna start, um... I want to go in two different paths right out of the box. One is, um, I'll call it the Nepalanic Creed, and then the, the second topic will be the, uh, I'll call it the Algerian Crisis. Um, yeah. Now, when, you know, at the, after the French Revolution and Napoleon took over, he sort of defined uh, what being French was. And yeah. he tried to, I guess, separate um, being a good Catholic from being French, and that to be French, um, you had to follow certain things, and freedom of religion or, or classifying you in a religious type uh, was something the French state um, wasn't going to do. And it, that's followed to today, where they don't seem to, uh, in a census, for example, ask uh, what your religion is. How do you think about in the original creation of the French state, starting with Napoleon, where they, they didn't... Um, they believed in what was French and that, that being a good Muslim or being a good Jew was sort of irrelevant um, as my first question. So, and, and that is really specific to France and you would, you would almost make an argument that every 
uh, European country found its path to the particular constitution of the day that they have now. Now, what is unique about the French is that they have this doctrine of laïcité. And that is a very radical separation of religion and politics. And um, I mean, I don't know if we have enough time to get into why France came down that path, but the French Revolution, um, the particularly, I would say, egregious uh, experience uh, in the French past with um, with religion or the Catholic past, that all led to uh, the desire for these almost clinical separation of um, of politics and religion. Now you fast forward to the 20th century and the 21st century and in comes a religion, uh, Islam that is, where the conversation about separating the two has barely begun. And uh, if you are a Muslim, a believing, and you're very serious about your religion, it's incredibly difficult to separate religious rules from political rules. And that is why it's easy for political Islamists when they organize to persuade large swathes of Muslims, regardless of whether they live in France or in Egypt, that if they are to be true to their religion, then they have to be political. And in France, it's the exact opposite. And according to um, French statistics, the number of people that they are recording right now as being Muslim in France is 6 million. Now, not mm-hmm. all 6 million of them are political, and many of them have, in fact, embraced uh, the principle of laïcité. But yeah, France does have uh, that, um, I would say, in terms of speaking on the level of integration, uh, they have the presence of a large swathe of Muslims who uh, who have a political approach to their religion, but who now live in France and are being asked um, to observe the norms and values of laïcité. It's very interesting to see what this particular president makes of it. What, in terms of uh, history of integration, um, you know, Algeria used to be uh, part of France, and they had a plebiscite to separate into its own country, and something on the order of seven or eight million uh, French Catholics returned from Algeria to France. Um, yeah. But during that civil war, um, a number of the Algerian uh, Muslims fought on the on France's behalf uh, during right. that civil war, and France had an obligation to allow the Algerians, uh, Muslims, to move to France. I think it was around a million at the time, um, and this was in the early 1960s, and it's that population um, which I would say France failed to integrate, failed to think it through. Um, but can you imagine if Algeria was still part of France as an alternative? Um, how that would have worked in the context of an integrated Europe. But in any case, what, you know, this has been going on since the early 1960s when those million Algerians showed up. Why haven't they been able to figure out why is it coming to a head now? Um, and what is the solution to this uh, six million? I think Algeria and the history between France and Algeria is a very interesting one. Um, the Algerians, um, who fought on the side of France, uh, 
have been in many ways betrayed uh, and so many different levels. So when you read that history, it's a very complex history. Um, but right now, I would say the issue of um, integration and integrating Muslims is and has gone beyond that particular relationship, say, between um, and very complicated and very bloody and full of betrayals and uh, I mean it, 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 it's it's fascinating in its own right. But right now the problem is not just an Algerian you know French relationship. It's gone beyond that. I I don't want the American audience to think, um, you know, the history of the descendants of black slaves and those who are, whose civil rights were compromised. That, that that the relationship with Algeria and France is like that. It is not. It's much more complicated than that. And if you look at the presence of uh, those six, mo- uh, six million Muslims in France, they come from, many of them come from Turkey, many of them come from other parts of North Africa, Tunisia, uh, but they also come from uh, West Africa, places like Senegal and Guinea. Um, so it would be, um, I think, simplistic to reduce it to... A colonial relationship. I was just using Algeria as an example of this was the initial large wave to properly integrate and it didn't work. It hasn't worked. It did work though. Not if you look at the, most of the people, most of the people uh, from, say, uh, a Muslim majority country who actually fully integrate, most of them will be Algerians and are Algerians. And in Holland, most of them are it's from a former colony, Indonesia. Um, mm-hmm. In Britain, um, I think you will find a number of former colonies that actually are very well integrated, and that's where um, contemporary political Islam comes into play. From 1979 onwards, we see an uptick in Islamist activism, and it's, uh, these Arab countries, Arab Muslim countries, are in fact evicting these radical Muslims, their imams and their organizations, and those who are evicted using the framework of asylum, you know, freedom of religion um, principles, were able to establish themselves in Paris and in London and in Stockholm and everywhere else. And so that is a separate problem. Yes, it does affect some Algerians, but it affects really most immigrants from Muslim minority countries who came as guest workers, who came as um, you know, through that relationship of after decolonization being a, a, a former colony, mother country is what they call it, uh, Anglo-Saxon context, the Commonwealth. Uh, but I think a lot of what we've seen, especially in the Islamist separatist space, that also leads to a manifestation of terrorism, that is Muslims in general, and some of them have nothing to do with colonization. They've been exposed to radicalization in some of these Western countries, European countries, and it's the failure of the European leadership to see it um, because they were busy trying to squeeze that problem into the left-right issue, demonizing each other. I mean, it's really hard in Europe right now to have a conversation about immigration, about integration, about radical Islam, because the two sets of leaders on either side of the spectrum start accusing one another in a very childish way of being evil. And just to um, bring it back to the decapitated school teacher for a second, um, what we have is, I guess, two different 
um, liberal uh, and, uh, themes. Uh, on one hand, we want to allow for uh, the freedom of religion and the freedom of speech uh, to proselytize your 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 group, uh, and on the other hand, we have other um, rights, uh, societal rights, like um, being able to teach um, about um, radical Muslims' acts of terror previously, as in this case uh, with the, with the caricatures. Um, but also, as you mentioned before, gay rights or uh, women's rights, which will be inconsistent with um, some of the other religious views. How is a liberal, democratic, open society supposed to deal with um, this radical uh, Muslim population? Um, so, you know, from a, there's a lot that's been written on this. So from a radical, uh, sorry, from a rational perspective, um, any society, you know, Britain, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden, but we have these conversations all the time. You have to answer the question, what is it? What are our core values? What is it that makes us distinct from everyone else? Now, here's one thing that cannot be blamed on immigration or on Muslims or any other external factors. And that is the conversation that is going on within the West on the level of ideas, the modernist versus the postmodernist. The postmodernists in any of these countries, it's I think quite potent in America, who are arguing that there is no such a thing as universal values. There's no such a thing as core values. And they start to get into a relativist uh, moral relativist mode um, that reduces everything into it's all just a matter of perspective everything is subjective that narrative you cannot blame on Islamist Muslims other external factors but if you then apply that philosophy the philo in, in Europe it's called the philosophy of multiculturalism you apply it to the issue of trying to integrate large numbers of people from Muslim countries then they're going to say, if all values are equal, if all religions are equal, if everything is subjective, why would you condemn the way I treat women? Well, my religion tells me to treat women or gay people or to think about blasphemy and democracy. Why would you condemn that as negative? Isn't it just unto you, your principles, and unto me, mine, and can I not just have them here? That is a conversation they've been having for a long time in Europe, and it looks to me like President Macron wants to break away from it. But within his own country, he can't, because there is an intelligentsia that will not let him do that. Aside mm -hmm. from that, there's also, there are some very, you know, compelling geopolitical reasons. He has, you saw once he said he was going to take this on, he was confronted by the president of Turkey. Now, Spain, Italy, Germany, they're not willing to have that confrontation with the president of Turkey that Macron wants to have with the president of Turkey. So it becomes very, very complex. And the issues of immigration, integration, and Islam, even though they may appear, okay, they're old enough, we should have been mature, we can now, after a lot of analysis, we think we see what is objective from what's not. Maybe we could agree on some issues. 
but it's just not going to happen yet. And so we are lurching from crisis to crisis when it comes to immigration, lurching from crisis to crisis when it comes to integration. And on the issue of Islam, it looks like each country is having its own, each member nation of the European country seems to be developing its own private relationship, Macron with the UAE, Germany with Turkey, and so on. So I think this is a problem that's going to go on for a long time. Ayan, thank you. All right, we're going to move on to our next two speakers to discuss uh, the benefits and costs uh, and whether we should abolish or preserve um, our electoral college, uh, which I thought was a good topic given that we just met a couple of days ago. Um, our first speaker is Jack Rakoff. He is a professor at Stanford in the history and political science and, and law departments. Uh, Jack, why don't you start out with your case for abolishing the electoral college? Good luck. Great. Well, happy to be here. Um, as we all know, the Electoral College uh, has been much in the news this week. Uh, and I want to use my, the opening part of my remarks to state three, three propositions about its history and its future. First proposition concerns its origins. The second deals with its early evolution. And the third and most important, important arguably suggests that we should replace uh, the Electoral College with a national popular vote and that the only way to do this requires an Article V constitutional amendment, which most people see as an infallible uh, stumbling block. So I want, to go, I want to start by going back to 1787, the year the Constitution was written. It's a big mistake, I think, to assign too much consistency or, for, or foresight to the way in which the framers of the Constitution imagined how this wholly novel mechanism would work. Of all the issues the framers faced, the election of the president was, I think, actually the most difficult and perplexing. There was, after all, no precedent in, available in 18th century political science to create a national Republican, lowercase r, a national Republican executive. The 18th century, the dominant models of executive power available were either monarchical or ministerial in nature. And back in 1776, the American revolutionaries had rejected both of those models. Uh, the frame, you know, the dealing with the dealing with the presidency was, I think, the single most vexing problem the framers faced. They were still wrestling with it. Uh, literally 10 days before they adjourned. And even then, they defaulted key decisions about how electors would be appointed to the state legislatures. I therefore think it's a big mistake to ascribe too much wisdom to their intentions, to assume that they had a well-conceived understanding about how the system of election would actually work. So I think today we are perfectly entitled to think critically, and indeed even disparagingly, uh, about how our system of presidential uh, election was originally conceived and to ask whether a, a better model might not work better, obviously. So that's the first idea. That's kind of the deep historical part. The second part follows, I think, pretty quickly uh, from the first. The early contested elections for the presidency reveal how quickly the system evolved once Americans began inventing political parties. Now, at the beginning, so long as George Washington wanted to be president, it did not matter how the president was, would be chosen. You'd always get the same result if Washington's on the ballot. Uh, back in 77, the framers believed that the election of a president by a popular vote would never work, mostly because it would be too difficult to fashion strong pluralities, much less a popular majority, in the geographically extended nation of the United States. But in fact, as soon as John Adams and Thomas Jefferson effectively opposed each other in the first contested election of 1796, a popular election would have produced a decisive choice. <clears throat> so the framers' expectations in that sense were wrong. Certainly, where the framers had somehow imagined, at least loosely conceived of the electors as a qualified group of informed and independently-minded citizens, once the elections were contested, the electors became, as they have ever since remained, the
the loyal to the loyal tools, the lackeys, if you will, of their political party. And third, while the framers of the Constitution did not determine exactly how electors would be appointed, the first contested elections of 1796 and 1800 produced numerous examples of how the state legislatures would manipulate the rules for appointing electors for, for partisan purposes. You know, when we think about 1800, we think mostly about the tie vote between Jefferson and Aaron Burr. But to my way of thinking, the interesting thing about 1800 is, is, is the ingenious way in which the states altered their rules for appointing electors out of overtly partisan concerns. And I'm a little worried coming out of the, this past week's event, or really coming out of the past election, uh, whether Republican legislators would be tempted to do the same thing looking ahead to 2024. So those are my first two historic points. My third point is essentially looking forward. Um, I'm a big believer that we should replace the electoral college with a national popular vote. But the only way to do that is to have an Article 5 amendment. Uh, I'll stress this point, as I'm sure Robert will, will soon agree, because as many listeners know, there is an alternative proposal out there to form a compact among states casting 270 electoral votes uh, to, to, to give the electoral college majority uh, to whichever national candidate turns out to be the popular vote winner. The problem with this proposal, which we, we know is the, quote, the NPVIC, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, is that no one has ever actually explained how it survives Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution, which requires interstate compacts to, uh, interstate compacts to secure congressional approval. Proposal of this nature would inevitably meet that objection. Once it does, it will prove impossible about the claim that a proposal so fundamental to nature must be done by constitutional amendment. So finally, just you know, my, last, my last thoughts, let me just advance you know, the fairly obvious read, well, some obvious, some less so, as to why I support the idea of a national popular vote. First, it is absurd to think that a candidate receiving fewer votes than his opponent should be the winner uh, of a presidential election. You know, even in this last election, with Biden enjoying a popular vote margin of 7 million, uh, a swing of some tens of thousands of votes could still have given Trump the victory. It just produces uh, extraordinarily discordant results. Second, found the principle we call one person, one vote. I believe a citizen's vote should count the same wherever it is cast. A vote in California should have the same weight as the vote in Wyoming. Uh, second, big point. In a popular election, a single national constituency, the parties would discover strong incentives to mobilize their voters wherever they were. And the problem of focusing political attention on a shifting number of battleground states would disappear. Third, for the past 30 years, the presidency has suffered a genuine legitimacy crisis which our dominant image of red and blue states only reinforces. Only reinforces. Having a national popular vote would restore a much-needed legitimacy to the entire office of the presidency. Fourth, the idea that a state-based system of presidential election is somehow essential to the vitality of our federal system is fallacious. Federalism would do just as well without it as with it. And that's a wrap. Sweet. Okay. Uh, Robert Hardaway uh, from the University of Denver Law School. Take it away. Well, thanks. Um, I can think of no better six-minute defense of our uh, Federalist institutions than that set forth by Senator John F. Kennedy in 1956. At that time, Republicans were convinced that the Electoral College favored Democrats, so they were trying to, quote, abolish it. And it was uh, JFK, a very famous and, and valiant defense in the U.S. Senate. He said, quote, abolishing the Electoral College would greatly increase the likelihood of a president elected by a minority of the people. I'll explain more what he meant by that in a moment. It would break down the federal system under which the states entered the union. I will make some comments on that, which provides a system of, of checks and balances, which ensures that no area or group shall obtain too much power. 
There's an old saying to the effect that one should take, not take down a fence until one knows why it was put up. So let me address each of those three important points. Uh, the first was, why do we have it in the first place? And in order to understand that, you have to understand the context of what the state of the colonies was back in 1787. The largest colonies, New York and Pennsylvania, were in the process of forming their own separate nation state, imposing tariffs, custom barriers on their hapless neighbors. And the smaller colonies were considering their old amalgam amalgamation of a separate nation in defense of that. Uh, George Washington very reluctantly even participated in the uh, in the Constitutional Convention because he said there's no way you can have one nation when there's just uh, you have on the one hand uh, the large states that insist on a legislature that's based purely on population and the small states that insist on equal suffrage in the Senate, a right they had under the Articles of Confederation. So he was not um, inclined to think that there would be any favorable uh, outcome. And of course, uh, the smaller states, Rhode Island even refused to send a delegate. They were so outraged and were intent on forming their own separate a nation with the other smaller states. So it didn't look, uh, it didn't look like there were much prospects uh, for a success of, a, of, of creating a united uh, a nation, a united country. And uh, by, they, they did the easy stuff first in the first months, uh, the first weeks of the Constitutional Convention. But then they got to what I think was the most uh, uh, critical question, which is related, uh, as uh, Jack pointed out, is related to the presidential election. But it was really uh, the bedrock uh, question was, how would a legislature be uh, constructed? Would it be based on population or would every state have equal representation? And the, the convention was on the verge of being of being dissolved, and everyone's going to go their own way, form their own separate nations, at least three, possibly as many as five. When in the last desperate hours, it was Benjamin Franklin, who uh, I, I think this was his most important contribution to the body politic and the creation of the United States. He said, let's do, let me give you this compromise. Let me propose it. We'll do both. We'll have a House that's based on uh, based purely on population and a Senate. Well, neither side a Senate in which there's equal suffrage. Well, neither party really liked that either side, and they said, "No, we want a guarantee. How do we know that uh, as soon as we adopt this Constitution, the big states won't uh, get a constitutional convention or uh, propose a constitutional amendment and take away our equal suffrage in the Senate, and will take away um, the weight that that the small states have in the election of a president." Um, and the only way that, they, that, that the compromise was eventually adopted by one vote, I should uh, say, we came within one vote of not having a United States of America, uh, was to say, okay, we'll give you a guarantee. And that's in the last sentence of Article 5, says you can't abrogate or take away the right of each state's uh, representation in the Senate, upon which, by the way, every state's weight in the presidential election is based, unless every state um, agrees. And it was only by uh, by adding this Article 5 guarantee against future demagogues trying to take away the equal suffrage in the Senate, upon which every state's weight in the Electoral College was going to be based in presidential elections, that it passed by a single by a single vote. That's how close we came to not having the United States of America. Now, the grand compromise, which JFK referred to, uh, was first the, 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 the compromise based on uh, the House and the Senate. Second, that each state would also be able to have a weight in presidential elections based on, in significant part, that equal representation of each state in the Senate.
And most important uh, of all, I think, was the last sentence of Article 5, which, which guaranteed that no future demagogues could take away their equal suffrage in the Senate upon which their weight in presidential elections was based. And that's pretty much why um, why President Kennedy noted that, look, look, we, this is a whole solar system of, co of government power we're talking about. If you're going to mess with one, like the Electoral College, then you really have to consider the others. They're all inextricably inter intertwined. And he said, uh, you can't do that unless you reexamine the Senate. They're both so closely uh, related. Now, the, his second point, uh, which may be counterintuitive, but he was right on the numbers. He says, if we adopt the Russian-type system or French system, a so-called popular vote system, you're not going to get a, a president elected uh, who is supported by the majority of the people. And he said, that's why he said um, uh, that, that, the, the, that abolishing the Electoral College would greatly increase the likelihood of a president elected by a minority of the people. And I gave a number of examples. I'll just give you one more recent one that really vindicates JFK's uh, concerns. Uh, in that election, there were two major parties, just like our country has two major parties. But, you know, the, uh, the, the, the electorate can be a little fickle sometimes. And in the summer of 19... Uh, in 2017, uh, the, in the first round of a so-called popular vote, um, uh, right-wing extremists got 23%. Uh, a renegade candidate, Macron, got 21%, thereby uh, presenting the hapless voters in France with the runoff between the two, these two unpalatable and unpopular candidates. So a candidate opposed by almost two-thirds of the voters was elected, and this so disgusted the French voters with what passed as democracy that they actually passed several mil they cast several million ballots with the blank ballot. Said so this is not this is not democracy. Now many of the criticisms of the Electoral College is that it creates so-called battleground states due to the unit vote rule, but this is the choice of each individual state. Uh, the drafters of the Constitution uh, wanted every state to determine how it was going to throw its uh, presidential weight around. Um, and, and every state has adopted it, with the exception of Maine and Nebraska. However, it's up to the states that created the unit vote uh, and any state that is free to abolish it. Uh, California and, uh, and uh, Colorado were, were the, the voters there were asked in a referendum, would you like to get rid of it? Because it creates battleground states. Isn't that terrible? But the voters resoundingly rejected that in both California. In California, they don't want to share their electoral votes with the Republican. They don't like the idea. Um, and if you had a Russian-style popular vote system, uh, candidates would doubtless spend most of their time campaigning in the big cities such as New York and Los Angeles. And one of the purposes of the, of the creation of the Electoral College uh, was that support for a candidate should be broad as well as deep. You can't, they didn't want a particular region, say in the South in the 1950s, segregationist candidates that get 90% of the popular votes and thereby uh, get a president elected against the will of the rest of the country. They wanted a system which would ensure broad support and, and not just concentrated support in, 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 a, in a particular region uh, like the South or in the coasts or, or anything of that nature. And I think in that, in that way, they, 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 they very much uh, succeeded. Um, All right. Let's, let's, go to the, let's go to the debate uh, and bring it together. Um, Jack, one of the things that Robert was saying was what happens if there are three or four candidates um, and someone 
uh, wins the popular vote with maybe, I don't know, 31 percent. Um, in your mind, would you like to see something where if you don't get a majority, 50.1 percent of the total vote, um, it ends up in the House where each state gets one vote? Or would you just say uh, whoever is the top of the hill? Or do you want runoffs like France uh, or Israel? I'm sorry, was that to me or was that to Jack? That was to Jack. Jack, uh, you, okay. you must be on mute. Oh, well, and maybe um, I can. Uh, am I on now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, no, we don't want to go into the house. I mean, you know, I think I would. You know, there there are ways to solve this. You could, for example, go to a uh, go to a system of ranked choice voting, uh, which would solve the problem. Uh, you could have a runoff election the way the French uh, and I believe the Brazilians do. I mean, they, they are they, they are feasible. Um, I, I I think. Uh, if we went to a national popular vote, I think there'd still be strong incentives, strong advantages, working on behalf of the of the two major political parties, assuming the Republican Party, as such, survives, which I think is becoming an open question. It survives as something other than than the Trump cult. But so you know, I I, I, I think those problems are solvable. Well, no, I mean, um, they're solvable in any sense. But what makes you think that um, the current French system that Robert was just attacking? Where you know, it only the two runoffs were a small minority of the total population, and something on the order of you know four million people decided to put a blank vote. Why is that? Well, why is splitting power with multiple parties a, a good yeah. idea? We see it in France, we see it in Italy, we see it in Israel. Um, why does it make it a stronger political system? Well, but look, Israel is a parliamentary system, Fair okay, enough. which you know, which is completely different from ours. Uh, France is a combined model. I mean, it, it seems in the end, Macron wound up with a pretty strong mandate. Uh, you know, coming out of the last presidential election. Well, because he did so well in the House as well. So, I mean, he did very well in, uh, in Parliament. In the Parliament. Uh, well, um, I, I might just point out here, if I could, that um, the uh, you know our electoral college is is very much the same as the British electoral college. Of course, they don't call it electoral. College. They call it a, a parliament uh, where they elect members of parliament who then in turn go to the, their electoral college, they call it a parliament, and elect the leader. Um, so it works almost exactly the same way as the parliamentary democracies. And in 1974, for example, the Labor Party managed to elect more MPs and form the government. But And if you looked at the total number of votes for MPs, it did not match. But I don't remember anyone saying this is undemocratic, we should abolish parliamentary democracies and so forth. Um, the only difference Actually, between our electoral college... Our listeners uh, on a very similar topic. Uh, Victor McKeeve wrote in and suggested why don't... Why aren't, Victor lives in London. He asked the question, why don't we just have each of the 435 congressional districts uh, vote separately in order to uh, achieve something like what England well, does? Well, the answer is the states have the option of doing that, and two states have already done that. that that's actually the, the system in Maine and, uh, and Nebraska. And yeah, so each but, state but is free to do that. But that is you have the whole problem of gerrymandering. Yes, so, yeah, exactly. So I can, agree with that. You can use what are called crack and pack principles uh, to distort to dis, to distort you know how districts would be constituted. So if it, you know if in fact you wanted to move more towards you know retain some kind of electoral electoral college system, but move to a vote, the only way the, the best way to, the best way to do that would be to, to do a kind of proportional 
allocation, which, which that would be closer to the Israeli model, right? Does a, you know, there are no districts in Israel. So uh, if, you, if, if you actually went to the district system, which was, in fact, a preferred reform when reforming the electoral college was discussed in the 19th century, the problem with it today is we've been, you know, the parties have invested so much work in learning how to gerrymander that you, you, that you, you could wind up uh, with vastly distorted results. And, and states and have Jack the option of doing that. If you state, think that's a good reform, uh, go, go to the states and have them agree on something like that, which would make a lot more sense than this MPVIC, which is based on the, on the illusion that there's a popular vote for candidates. You vote for electors who may or may not vote for the, for the actual uh, candidate that they've pledged to vote for. And also, but how no, do you count no, popular no, votes? It's ridiculous. No one votes for electors. We have the whole faithless elector case. We don't want electors exercising their independent judgment. They've never had any value or function. As soon as we had contested elections, electors became the simple tools of the party. Electors, well, they that, serve no function whatsoever, except that their presence distorts, uh, you know, the, the, the one, vote, one person, one vote principle, which to my way of thinking is fundamental to any modern democracy. There's no reason why a vote in Wyoming is for Jack? more than a vote in California. Well, Jack, do you think that we should, Jack, should we have a Senate or not? Yeah, so then if you, yeah, if you believe I, in one state, one vote, I, I then you'll do really like the left-winger saying and abolish the Senate. I mean, Robert's right to say that that's, um, uh, you know, that that's locked into the Constitution. It's not subject to Article 5 Amendment for exactly the reasons he gave. But I, I have to say, Robert, I thought your historical account of what happened in 1787 was badly distorted. Uh, and you, 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 don't, you, you don't really know. It seems to me you don't really know the history very well. And until you come up with a coherent explanation of how the whole electoral college system was designed, you can't really maintain the argument you're making. It's fine that JFK said what he did, you know, back in 1956, but that's, you know, it seems to me that's largely irrelevant to what the problems we have to deal with today. Well, I've written several books, which I go into a lot of detail. It's hard to go into that detail in six minutes. I was just hitting some of the high points that JFK wrote. New York was not one of the largest states. By the way, they were states, not colonies. The role you ascribe to Franklin, that's wrong uh, in, in, in terms of this. Uh, the idea that the electoral college system is essential to preserving the equal state vote uh, is erroneous. I mean, so I, well, I, I JFK, made, JFK may have been off the mark, but I think that when we came to understanding the origins of electoral college, I think he was right on the numbers, and, I, and, I, and I, that's why I've looked into every one of his assertions historically and said that he was absolutely right, and he's also absolutely right in predicting the, the, the disasters that occur in elections like in France. He had it right on the, uh, right on the numbers. Our elections and elections in France, we have a different political culture. I think you have to reason from American history. Just well, the, yes, you do, because we have two two parties, uh, and that's because, uh, as I explain in my book, that that flows from the electoral college. Without the electoral college, it's not a coincidence that we're the only country in the world with the two-party system. It's because we're the only one that has a real electoral college, and uh, all the problems with multi-parties and so forth are all based on uh, in countries which which don't have an electoral college. <clears throat> But I think uh, JFK was right on the numbers. And I think history uh, was... If, if you believe that today um, that the Constitution is flawed both for the Electoral College and for the Senate, um, does it also mean that... Um, are you also opposed to small states or federalism in general? You know, like, let's just say... Pick a state, Vermont, 
here it is a three, a very small state. Um, you know, it has, as you say, like your Wyoming's example, it has too much power. Um, should the federal government uh, get rid of some of these smaller states and merge it with some of the bigger states? Um, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not an issue I thought about. I'd be willing to discuss it in the abstract. Well, there, there's a bigger issue here, which, which is hard to explain in, in, in a short period of time. But, you know, ask yourself the question. When, when you go to the polls, do you ever vote on the basis of the interests of the state in which you live? When we vote presidentially, I mean, I've lived in five or so different – I've cast my votes in, I think, five different states over the course of my lifetime. I'm 73 years old now. Uh, and I carry my preferences with me wherever I live. You know, when I move from one state to another, I don't ask what is the interest of this. What is in the interest of the state that should affect or influence the way I vote presidentially? I ask what are, what are my political values. So I think in that sense, uh, you know, as opposed to what I think what it, I think Robert believes, it seems to me the values of federalism are adequately protected uh, in Congress. That's to say, we have a geographically based system of, of appointing both members of the House of Representatives and members of the Senate. Uh, but I think it's kind of crazy for the one truly national office, the presidency, to have a state-based system when, in fact, the preferences on which we act when we vote presidentially do not really depend upon those kinds of local issues. Um, I, I've heard many proposals along Jack's proposal, uh, his thinking, that it's just not fair that Wyoming has more power in the Senate, for example, than California. And I've heard proposals along the Green Party and left-wing people um, to say we should, we should try to abolish the Senate and get every state to agree to abolish the Senate. I've also heard proposals, well, let's just make it one person, one vote, so that Wyoming, uh, that California would get 58 senators and, and Wyoming would be lucky to get one senator. I've, I've heard all these proposals, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's as Madison, uh, Madison said uh, originally, um, is that we're, you know, we don't have, uh, we, we don't have, a, we, don't, we don't elect a president based on the, the masses. Uh, we, we have 13 separate sovereignties, he said, and uh, those, those 13 sovereignties elect the president, and that's the fundamental cornerstone. Of, of, of federalism that creates a united uh, a united uh, republic, so uh, that's why I say when people, as JFK said, when people if people want to mess with one part of it, they want to mess with the electoral college, abolish it or whatever, um, then they really have to consider uh, abolishing the U.S. Senate because they're inextricably intertwined. The, the weight of each state and the electoral college is based on uh, the Article Five guarantee of equal suffrage in the Senate. And if we're going to destroy Jack, that, up, Jack, just to follow up with you for a second, um, you mentioned that you don't think of you being a resident or a, a person of California. You've lived all over the U.S., and many listeners on our call have lived in multiple states over their life. Um, it's ironic that at this point of U.S. history, um, people have been. Uh, it used to be people who even used to be members of more states over their lifetime. Uh, there was a lot more uh, movement across the country. But are you suggesting that maybe this concept of having 50 individual states itself um, is undemocratic and kind of uh, anachronistic? Should we no, abandon not, the state? Not, should not, we abandon the state? Not really. Well? I mean, I, I think it does have a distorting impact on the presidential vote. I, I do think that I do think the principle. Just beyond the president, are you suggesting that we're all Americans and we should but move towards a national government and reject federalism? We, we carry our preferences with us. 
For example, if you believe in the Second Amendment, if you believe in abortion or the right to life, uh, if you believe in this, that, or the other thing, you know, those are the commitments that really, that really determine how we vote individually. The idea that when we vote, we're doing it in, in some sense to preserve the federal system, or that the federal system somehow depends upon our system of presidential elections, to be honest, that just strikes me as being nuts. Um, I might point out that actually Jack's proposal is similar to one that Alexander Hamilton made. He proposed, let's get rid of the states. Let's just have straight lines, sort of like you have in Russia, and divide it up into regions and so forth. But uh, federalism would never have worked. We would never have a united country because these small states and the big states would never have agreed to form one country. And if we hadn't been for our federalist structure that the founding fathers created, I, we wouldn't have had one nation. We'd have at least three. Robert, what I think what Jack is saying is, you know, what the past be the past. We're in 2021. Uh, if we were going to create our new country right now, how would we do it and why? Um, would we have states? Would we have a Senate? Um, or would we, you know, adopt some sort of parliamentary or um, maybe a combination of a, a single house um, and, and an executive? Uh, and I ask you, Jack, do you, do you like the states? Should we have these individual states? Well, I think, um, you know, there, I mean, to take a Hamiltonian, I'm, I'm much more of a Madisonian than a Hamiltonian. I mean, I've spent, I've spent almost half a century working on Madison, and I just, I just do Hamilton on the side. But, you know... I have to think if you know if we were starting from scratch, uh, you know, abolishing you know abolishing or, or relegating the states to a lesser position, uh, you know, we you know, would be an acceptable option. Uh, it would be an acceptable option. But you know, the issue the issue today is the same as it was I think in seventy seven. You'd have a lot of transaction costs. Uh, I mean, I think that was uh, Hamilton was the only one to, to talk about uh, uh, eliminating or redrawing state lines. The problem is you already have, you already have all these separate legal systems. You know, going back to the found, you know, going back to the formation of of, of the colonies and the and, you know, the different legal histories they have. So the transaction cost of getting rid of the states would run awfully high. But that's that's one reason why I think Robert is wrong to think that federalism somehow depends upon the you know the existence of the presidency. Uh, you know, federalism. You know, the very existence of the states, and you know, the, the fact we have these separate bodies of law that are, you know, state and local as well as national. I mean, that's a, you know, we, we've made such a deep investment in this that the federal system is destined to, is destined to persist. You know, for you know, for you know, for a long time, anyhow. And and the presidency doesn't really have anything to do with that. Well, I, I'm, I'm, Jack. I appreciate that you that you're a Madisonian, and as I, I now have the exact quote. Then when he was asked, what, what constitution have you created? And he says, this government is not completely consolidated, nor is it entirely federal. Who are the parties to it? The people, not as the people comprising one great mass, but the people comprising 13 sovereignties. And that's what that was the basis. I mean, federal federal uh, federalism is extremely complex. I teach federal jurisdiction and the checks and balances are so are so sensitive, uh, so complicated, really. But I think federalism works because you have a separation between local interests and also national interests. And, and, and making those two interests combine in one nation is extremely difficult, particularly in a country with this with such geographic extension as the as the United States. But the drafters realized that you can't have a country uh, controlled by just particular regions or, or, or 
uh, areas of the United States, as JFK said. They asked the, the, the bank robber, Willie, Willie Sutton, I think it was, um, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the, that's where the money is. And if we had this, national, this Russian system, national popular vote, where would they people campaign? They go where the votes are. They campaign no, in Los Angeles. Right. See, in I, think, I, I think that's false. I think if you, have, if you have a national popular vote and the parties are competitive, uh, so, so they have to act with the campaign. It seems to me the strongest incentive is they want to mobilize their votes wherever they are. The, the, you know, the idea that everybody will spend all their time campaigning in what? Uh, New York, L.A., the Bay Area, Chicago, Houston. Ar- arithmetically, that's bunk. You know, and if you do the arithmetic, it's a vast electorate. They don't all live in the big cities. You know, we know, we know, oh, but- we know big cities are highly democratic. We know the r- rural countryside is highly Republican. We know the real battlegrounds are, are suburban and exurban areas throughout the country, and that you know, that kind of sociology, which by the way, this is a very this is also a very Madisonian approach, has nothing to do uh, with actually with the existence of state lines. It's really a way of asking what are the real how are the real interests and preferences of the citizens, not the states, of the citizens distributed across the landscape. Well, I don't you know, know how very- much. That's kind of a recent, as Larry, it's kind of a recent phenomena, um, this concept of battleground states, in the sense, if you, uh, if you go back to a very close election, like in 1960, uh, which was almost a popular vote tie, um, in that election, um, there were only like 14 states in which any of the two candidates uh, got more than 55% of the vote. But here in uh, 2020, 34 states um, had uh, more than 55%. So you know this the concept of battleground states is not something that has uh, always been uh, an American phenomenon, but it's just more recently played itself out where this rural versus urban thing is also um, is, is modern. Yeah. Of course, Actually, it changes no, I mean, over time I, I, too. I want to mention if we still have a little time here. Think about what's happened to Georgia, which is you know for a long time like South Carolina, Georgia was really the heart. Of the, you know, along with Mississippi, Alabama, of you know the you know the the, the cotton belt, slave belt, you know really the racist parameters uh, of Southern politics. Why has Georgia now become a battleground state? There are really two reasons. One is Stacey Abrams, because she realized there's a big black electorate out there. You could do a better job of mobilizing. The second factor is the Georgia economy has changed. The Georgia society has changed. Uh, people, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, economic and social changes have changed the very nature of the state of Georgia. So it's, it's you know, its history is a state, its culture is a state. The whole process of population movement, which is really based on the preferences of individuals, you know, social choices of individuals, is what changes the composition of the state. And that's, again, that's a reason for saying that there's some, you know, kind of important correlation between having a state-based system of presidential elections and maintaining federalism, that just strikes me as a false equation. Uh, a couple other comments about the It's so funny because I think that is the exact back. opposite, Jack. Why is um, the fact that Georgia, which has, uh, I'll call it a new population because of wild swings in immigration, um, given a chance to reconstitute itself into, uh, into, a, into a purple state? I mean, yeah, in yeah. 1960... In 1960, JFK won Georgia by like 30%. Uh, Nixon got like 25. Um, and then it became a Republican state, um, probably you know, after ni- beginning in 1980, after Carter had won the state. Uh, he probably won it in 80 as well. Um, 
so you know it, it moves around. It, it has uh, massive African American immigration from my home state of Illinois uh, has moved to Atlanta, which is a, a new modern uh, black metropolis, not Chicago anymore. Um, why, why is that problematic at all, or it run counter to? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not saying it's problematic. It's it's just a way of illustrating what are the real dynamics of how the pres- of how our electoral system works. Again, I'm trying to get at this idea. You know, I mean, it seems, I think if I understand Robert's arguments correctly, um, that he really is trying to emphasize the federalism values that the presidential election system has, and I think he's exaggerating and even really distorting what those values actually are. But the other thing I'm trying to say is that, you know, and this, again, I think this is a Madisonian position as well, is that there's no way to say what the interest of the state is until you actually aggregate the preferences of its citizens. And the problem with battleground states is what makes them battleground states is precisely because they're closely divided, meaning the citizens of the states themselves don't really agree as to, you know, as to, you know, as to what their core interests are. That's what makes them battleground states. It's their disagreement, not their sense of cohesion as a state. If I can add two points about the battleground states, just two quick points. One is that it changes over time. You know, it, it what becomes um, a battleground state changes based on demographics. And uh, that's one reason that, uh, like in 1979, Vernon Jordan, uh, on behalf of uh, the African-Americans in his constituency, uh, was opposed to abolishing the Electoral College. He was along with, he, he agreed with uh, JFK. And he made the point, which, which basically swayed the whole Congress against this whole idea of, of, of adopting the Russian system. Quote, take away the Electoral College and the importance of being black melts away instead of being instead of being crucial for victory in in major states such as battleground states instead become 10 percent of the electorate with a reduced impact so they realize that this push to abolish the electoral college which you know every comes every 10 to 10 years or so uh when a particular party thinks that somehow they've gotten a raw end of the of the stick even though there's really only been a divergence between a hypothetical popular vote and an electoral vote and Average of once a century, like it does in all the parliamentary democracies in the world. For example, in 1974 in England. But I, I was wondering if we, if we're running short of time, would it be possible for me to at least um, uh, make a point of agreement with, with Jack, which is this NPVIC? Uh, if we could just talk about that for a second, would that be possible? Um, because I think we are, we we agree on that. That uh, my main problem with the NPVIC, of course, the compact clause is a, is a huge, uh, according to the multi state tax commission uh supreme court decision uh, those kind of compacts are okay uh when they're very benign sort of uh, you know sharing water rights and so on but when you under when you affect the national structure um it it, it it's, it's not permissible you would have to get the permission of uh, of congress and um it's it's also based on the illusion that when you go into the voting booth you vote for you vote for candidates how do you count like in the 1960 election several states um had unpledged electors how do you count popular how do you translate uh, popular votes for unpledged electors to um to votes for a particular candidate or how do you do it like in 19, in 2016 when three colorado electors who were who were pledged to Hillary Clinton decided to vote for a republican instead how do you count the popular votes for those electors who violated their pledges? And in a third of the states, um, electors are not even required to vote for the person they're pledged to. There's just simply no way to do that. 
And also, how can you have a recount when every state has a different trigger for having a recount? How can you have a national recount when only half the states participate in it? It just doesn't make any, it just doesn't make any, any sense. And since any kind of scheme or cabal that's formed by the states um, can be that, that, that anyone, any participant in it can withdraw at any time, that means that uh, states could, uh, once the legislature passes control from Republicans and Democrats, the other party could withdraw from the cabal, and that means you'd have uh, changing the, the goalposts on every election. You'd have a different standard in every election. So I, I think, Jack, do we agree that the MPVIC is not the way to go? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I definitely agree. The only way to accomplish the national popular vote is by Article 5 Amendment, and the problem is, as I think about it, is what is the best way to strategize that very difficult uh, goal? Okay. Um, so that ends, we agree on that uh, one. Anyway. college debate. Um, if you guys can put yourself on mute for a minute, and we're going to invite our next speaker, Deirdre McCloskey, who is a distinguished professor of economics, history, English, communications at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And she will be discussing her book, uh, The Myth of the Entrepreneurial State. Deirdre, if you've joined the line, please go ahead. Hi, how are you, dears? I, um, um, can you hear me adequately? Can you hear yes, me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Oh, good. Um, A little bit. Speak up. Well, how, why is that? Is it clearer now? It's a little distorted, but uh, try going ahead. Okay. I have, a, I have a speech defect, so you'll have to grow accustomed to it, but it's only for, it's only for a, a few minutes. The argument of the, uh, of, of the book that I wrote with Alberto Mingardi, which came out in October, is that the idea of industrial policy which is becoming popular again on both the, the, the Democratic and Republican side, is very strange and is very weak. The argument for industrial policy is that the, the, the government should be making decisions about innovation in this industry or that, or investment in, in uh, 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 aircraft or um, investment in, in farming. And the counter-argument is the very simple one that the, 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 Government is unlikely to get that kind of choice right. I mean, obviously, if the Canadians are in, in, invading us, uh, which of course is, is a tremendous uh, rational fear, then we need the government to act, and it's fairly obvious how it should act. But in these very tricky decisions about what uh, uh, products we're going to uh, favor or what industries should expand or contract, it, it, it seems to me and to lots of other observers that, that it's, it's, it's going to be smarter to leave that decision to the profit and loss 
in a market economy. Here's an illustration. How many how many products, new products, do you suppose are introduced every year, tried out, one might say, in American grocery stores? Now, this is every year. How many? Is it 100 or 1,000? No. It's 20,000 products. That means in, in order to decide which one of these to pursue, a central planner in Washington or, or Springfield, Illinois, or somewhere would have, to, would have to herself decide whether this kind of beans or that kind of oatmeal is the one that should be put forward. That, that's what an industrial policy means. And of course, the actual way that the, 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 the this massive number of new products is sorted out is the ones that sell, the ones that the grocery stores find they can make make, make money on and, and pay their employers with, are the ones that go forward. Now, the, it, it, the, in other words, industrial policy, to use a, a hot term that often uh, gets people uh, um, overexcited, is a version is a version of socialism. I'm, I'm, I'm not claiming that my friends, my few uh, who are in favor of such policies, are. Um, are um, communists or something like that. But I am saying that under socialism, one puts political decisions ahead of economic decisions. And uh, of course, there are lots of cases where one should. If you're uh, facing a, uh, a plague, um, early in the plague, it's very desirable that the, 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 that the government take charge and stop the plague if there's an invasion, as I said, or if there's a, if there's a forest fire. There's no easy way of taking care of a large forest fire with uh, market mechanisms. But for most of the things that we buy and sell, including our own labor, it makes a lot more sense to use the information that we all have about what we like, what we're prepared to accept in the way of pay, um, what sort of careers we think we can do. Those, that information is not in the heads of someone in, in, in Washington or, or, or in London. It's in the heads of ordinary people spread out over the economy. And, and it's been said, and I think it's exactly correct, that for most issues, the best way of marshalling this information is through supply and demand, through the, through the uh, marketplace. So that's all right. The I'll go straight to questions, Jerry. Certainly, do please. Um, okay. So um, 
President Biden is 10 days out. Um, he's mentioned that he wants to um, do some industrial policy, particularly as it relates to the environment and various yeah. green projects. Um, let's start with that industry specifically because that's the one industry that uh, Biden has talked about. Um, he's also mentioned some anti-fracking stuff as well. Um, sure. How should we think about um, – how do you think Biden will want to implement uh, his industrial policy to achieve the objectives, environmental objectives that he wants? Um, what would you say is the wrong way to do it? What's the right way to do it? Is there a right way to do it? Um, and how do you think he will do it? Well, I, 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 uh, I, I, I voted for him, which is the for first time I haven't voted for the for, for the Libertarian Party candidate for a long, long time, but uh, I, I, I've, but I think he's going to do it the way it's usually done. For example, under the Obama administration, there were massive subsidies to wind power, um, and for that matter, to solar power. And I don't think subsidies make any sense. I mean. Yeah, uh, you can say, well, you know, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, a very smart person, and I know that wind power is going to be the power of the future. But as a matter of fact, in, in England, where it's been extensively tried, the problem is that the wind doesn't blow all the time. And so there are great ups and downs in the, uh, in the amount of electricity that's being that's being uh, generated by these, these these mills. So, it the right way to encourage alternative power is to is for the is for the government to invest in research. Uh, in particular, we, we we ought to be doing, I think, uh, if you want my opinion, more atomic power, uh, something on the order of 80 or 90 percent of French electricity is generated with very safe and um, undisturbable uh, atomic uh, power. So I, I think they're going to go the they're going to go the usual way, and it's it's a clumsy. It's not evil. It's it's not because although sometimes it is because people are evil. Uh, particular interest groups will um, uh, seize influence in the government, and they'll get subsidies for them. A spectacular example of this, of course, is the subsidy to corn in my formerly home state of Iowa. Uh, for for fuel, that is a absurd policy. It's an industrial policy. It's been in effect for a very long time, and Charles Grassley is not allowed is not about to allow it to lapse. That, by the way, is another problem with industrial policy that it it tends to be permanent. It's very hard to change it. Whereas if one of the 20,000 grocery items introduced annually in the United States doesn't work out, it passes away, and we find another kind of oatmeal. Let me try a new line of questioning. Um, 
In the next couple of weeks, we're going to uh, have a discussion about changes in antitrust policy. Um, one of the ideas being contemplated by the Biden administration is to break up some of the large tech firms, think Amazon, yeah. Google, yeah. Um, yeah. et cetera. Um, how do you think about that form of industrial policy? I, I, think it's, firms I, are broken up? I think it's a terrible mistake. I think it's very uh, uh, foolish. The reason that these large firms are large is that they're very competent. It's not because of their uh, their alleged malfeasance of various kinds. Um, it, maybe they have maybe they have malfeased, but that's not why Google and Facebook are six are so six, are so successful. Um, uh, yes, as you said, you're absolutely right, and this is often forgotten. Antitrust policy is a form is another form of industrial policy. It's another form of the of the of, of politics taking over the the economy. There, there's of course a longstanding attitude in the United States that anything large is dangerous. Uh, they, they don't have quite the same attitude about this in France or, or, or Germany or even in Britain, but we do, and it's a long-standing uh, feature of our, our politics. But it is politics. And, of course, it has the problem, as the classic case of the Interstate Commerce Commission shows, that the antitrust gets exercised in the interest of what interest can take over the antitrust policy. So you'll, you'll say it, it, it's happened over and over again. So no, I, I don't think antitrust is a good idea. I don't think tariffs are a good idea. They're another form of industrial policy, which shows you, by the way, that industrial policy is ancient. It's, it's as old as um, Joseph in in Egypt, it's it's what governments do, and they shouldn't. Is there um, any hope that um, the Biden administration will pursue uh, or not pursue industrial policy, or is it too much in the incoming that incoming administration's DNA? Well, I, as I just finished saying, it's in every administration's DNA. After all, the, the Trump administration uh, is notorious for imposing um, uh, arbitrary and insane and sometimes highly um, uh, corrupt um, tariffs, which uh, have a long history of uh, in the United States. So I, I don't think the Biden administration is going to be any worse than the, the, than the, the Trump administration or indeed the Obama administration or the, you know, just go back through all the administrations because what, what politicians and governments like to do is to have what they call these days programs. That's what 
any politician who can uh, who can get her name on a on a policy. Uh, uh, the, the the Helen Jones uh, Act um, is thrilled, and that's that's what they like to do. And it, it's uh, it's not to our interest. It's in the interest of some of us, but then that's against the interest of all the others. So we argue in the, in the book that they're just terribly deep um, fallacies, problems, factual absurdities in the case for intervening, in particular in innovation policy. But it applies, as I've been saying, to all kinds of other interventions in the economy. Now, look, that doesn't mean I'm against all interventions in the economy. I think there should be a, 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 a I think there should be a safety net for, for, for the poor and disabled, and I think that there are certain functions of, uh, of government that I guess you could call interventions in the economy. But so many of them, in particular this one we talked mainly about, innovation policy, are um, turn out to be con games or tragedies or absurdities. Okay. Um, this is the point of the show where I ask each of the speakers to end on a note of optimism. Um, I'm going to start with Michael McConnell. Uh, Michael, if you're still with me, um, I, I'd like you to do two things for me. Uh, one is, uh, I was hoping that you would say something um, during the Electoral College discussion. So if you could uh, give me your observations of that discussion and then end uh, on a note of optimism uh, as it relates to presidential power, that'd be terrific. Well, yes, the oddity of the Electoral College issues is that the modern reasons given for why the Electoral College might makes sense, have almost no relation to the historical reasons for which it was adopted uh, at the time, which uh, is just an, uh, an oddity. Uh, I don't get very excited about the Electoral College debate because it would require a constitutional amendment, and it just seems to me so far-fetched to think that two-thirds of the states are going to, um, or of Congress and, and three-quarters of of the states are going to adopt uh, an amendment which diminishes the power of half of them, that uh, it's just not going to happen, and so I don't worry about it. I do actually agree, I should say, with Jack Rakoff, uh, that if we were starting afresh today, we would never adopt the Electoral College. It was uh, designed for the problems of an uh, earlier time. Now, as for uh, a note of optimism, I think every time we have a new president, it's worth uh, optimism, and I'd like to just say that about it does seem to me that uh, our new president—we don't know what his what his character is really going to look like—but he seems uh, rather more modest in his uh, proclamations and maybe in his sense of self than the uh, last two occupants of the office. And I think that it may very well be that he. Uh, shows some uh, uh, self-restraint, which is the most important uh, aspect of an executive. Uh, Robert, do you want to give us a note of optimism? Well, thank you. Yes, um, 
I am optimistic about the the defeat, uh, ultimate defeat of this uh, NPVIC. I think Jack and I both agree that that's a, kind of a travesty, the whole idea of it. Uh, back in 2007, uh, when they first proposed this in the in the Colorado Legislature, I went down with two other with two other professors, and I said, give. They were 10 to one in the the Senate committee. The the Colorado Senate committee was 10 to one in favor of this thing, and uh, I said, give me 20 minutes. And I can persuade you that that, that it's that it's not viable. And uh, 20 minutes later, they agreed to change their vote from 10 to 1 in favor to 10 to 1 against. And I think that as the word gets out uh, about this about this uh, this this cabal, uh, I am very optimistic. And I also uh, agree uh, that it's very unlikely that a constitutional amendment. Of course, I take the position as JFK did that that you can't abolish the electoral college unless you ab- abolish the U.S. Senate. But that may or may not be the case. But um, in any case, I, I have a great optimism that the, the Federalist foundations of our country will be preserved and will serve us well in the future as it has, has in the past 200 years. Thank you, Robert. Deirdre, do you want to end on a note of optimism? Sure. In, in fact, my, my, my ba- one basis for my optimism is to mention uh, uh, is Biden is that, like me, he stutters. <laughs> and that... that that fact is important in the formation of a, of a personality because you're, you have a handicap. And if you don't think you have a handicap, and that's Trump's problem, your arrogance comes to, <laughs> comes to the fore. And it's the arrogance of in industrial policy and, and these kind of random interventions in the economy that, 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 that annoy me and, and that are costly. But the United States and Sweden and, and France and lots of other countries are, are basically market economies. And yes, random absurdities like a uh, uh, tariff on French wine and so forth can, can, can disturb things. But I think on the whole, they're in the the nature of an error term. These, a a smallish error term, these economies, and particularly our own, are engines of innovation that operate mainly through private uh, enterprise. And so I, I am, I'm in general an optimist, but I am even in these times, uh, optimistic about the future of the American economy. Thank you very much. Um, That ends today's session. Uh, I want to thank our speakers and our audience for their participation. Uh, Just a plug for next week, um, we're going to have uh, Martin Gorey and Bill Easterly talk about uh, the arrogance of experts, I guess a follow-up to Deirdre's points. Um, We're also going to have, go back to our roots, um, and have some COVID speakers, including Dr. Ari Cement, who will discuss the latest treatments and respiratory issues associated with COVID. Uh, with that, that ends today's session. Thanks again, uh, and this is, and you may disconnect. Okay, have a great day. Go Bears. Bye bye. Thank you all. <laughs>